0: Hey everybody, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 29 of the PopeCast, the podcast for people who like learning about history but don't much like dry, dusty history books. On this episode of the PopeCast, it's a guy who historian Eamon Duffy listed as one of the ten popes that shook the world. He was friends with a couple of bad popes, did some shady stuff himself in early life, and then had a profound conversion and laid the groundwork for reform of the church that we're still feeling over 500 years later. This week it's the Pope of the Counter-Reformation, Pope number 220, Paul III. Alessandro Farnese was born in Canino, Italy, on February 29th, 1468, a leap year baby, to two of Rome's historically powerful families. The Catani, on his mother's side, had most notably produced Pope Boniface VIII, the guy who followed and then imprisoned the elderly and monkish St. Celestine V, after the latter's resignation from the papal throne in 1294, and then there was the Farnese family on Alessandro's father's side who ruled over a couple of duchies and also eventually produced the future Queen of Spain, in addition to, of course, a pope of their own. Alessandro was a Renaissance man in the 16th century sense of the term. He was highly educated, lived an opulent life, and owed his early success to his sister being the mistress, to arguably the worst of popes, that being Alexander VI. See episode 23 of the Popecast for more on him. As a student, Alessandro was widely praised for his intelligence, He was especially a master of classical Latin and Italian, and as if being connected to one of the bad popes wasn't enough. While in school at the University of Pisa, Alessandro became friends with the future Leo X, a man who all but ushered in the initial Protestant Reformation in 1517. Alessandro was named Cardinal Deacon of the Basilica of Saints Cosmas and Damien at just 25 years old, reportedly at the urging of his sister, as we mentioned, as a result of her cozy arrangement with Alexander, the reigning pope. For this little piece of nepotism, Alessandro was mockingly called Cardinal Petticoat, a not-so-subtle reference to ladies' undergarments of the time. Alessandro would go on to take a mistress of his own, one Sylvia Ruffini, and she would bear him four children with whom he lived— in an opulent palace that he had built for himself. The Catholic Encyclopedia notes that the palace, quote, excelled in magnificence all the other palaces of Rome, end quote. He was, to put it briefly, a product of his time, having amassed a great amount of wealth, but with no shortage of diplomatic skill or tact in playing nice with all parties. He was a generous patron of the arts and philosophy, and he scaled the ranks of the Roman Curia over 40 years, becoming well-liked by all sides, a pretty darn rare quality in those days. He would eventually become dean of the Sacred College of Cardinals, and then, of course, made pope in 1534. Interestingly enough, before we get to his papacy, what was sure to have been a bizarre turn of events, given the bloated and decadent state of the church in those years, Alessandro had nothing short of a profound and life-changing conversion around the age of 45. Having been put in charge of the bishopric of Parma by Pope Julius II in 1509, Alessandro was still a deacon, technically, mind you, he began to take his obligation much more seriously. And of course, whatever the case may be has been lost to history, but by 1513, he ended things with his mistress, provided for her well-being, and never returned. Then, in what was something increasingly strange, he chose to have himself ordained a priest in 1519, having his first Mass on Christmas of that year and being universally known by his contemporaries to have lived a celibate life beyond reproach from then until his dying day in all Alessandro participated in the elections of and served during the papacies of no less than 5 bishops of Rome Pius III Julius II his schoolmate Leo the Adrian the 6th and finally Clement the 7th his immediate predecessor upon the death of Clement a conclave was convened of course but it seemed barely a formality. On October 13, 1534, Alessandro Farnese was unanimously chosen by his brother cardinals to become the 219th successor of St. Peter at the age of 67. He chose the name Paul III and was coronated three weeks later to the applause of the Roman people, overjoyed at the first citizen of the Eternal City to become pope since Martin V almost two centuries earlier. At the time of his election, the Encyclopedia Britannica recounts that, quote, Pope Paul, though apparently frail, was a man of great charm and determination. He was described in diplomatic reports as shrewd and affable, deliberately slow of speech, yet loquacious, expressing himself in an elegant Italian or Latin with learned allusions and scrupulously refraining from tying himself down to a definite yes or no until the final settlement of an issue, but then able to act with swift, uncompromising dispatch, end quote. He was painted by the renowned Renaissance artist Titian three times in the last 10 years of his life, each one showing a man more vigorous and keen than his age should have allowed. Though Paul was definitely committed to reform the church in terms of her discipline, and of course the bleeding of numbers at the height of the Protestant revolt, he still had a healthy taste for fun and extravagance. Paul revived the Roman Carnival, the eight-day celebration ending on Fat Tuesday and leading into Lent. He also brought back bullfights and horse races, hosted grandiose dinner parties, and most notably commissioned the equally aged Michelangelo to not only complete his work on the Sistine Chapel by painting the priceless Last Judgment, but to also architect the new St. Peter's Basilica, both of which stand proudly in Rome today as beacons of beauty to the world. Now on the Reform front... Paul III was no slouch. Sure, he elevated two of his grandsons to the College of Cardinals, both were still teenagers, but he tended to venture outside of the normal circles for the rest of his red hat picks, chief among them being Cardinal Reginald Pole, nephew to the infamous Henry VIII in England, as well as the British bishop and now saint, John Fisher. Europe's most renowned theologian who was in prison at the time, awaiting execution. Paul likely thought that the tyrant king wouldn't dare kill a cardinal, so he made the move, if nothing else, to spare Fisher's life. But, as history has told us, he was sadly mistaken. Paul III was also simultaneously dealing with constant bickering between Emperor Charles V of Spain on one hand and King Francis I of France on the other, while also Paul convening commissions to report on every kind of abuse, reforming the various courts of the Vatican, all at the same time. Over the course of his 15 years in office, Paul III also confirmed the formation of several religious orders— several of whom are known to us today, such as the Capuchin Franciscans, the Ursulines, the Barnabites, Theatines, and most notably, in 1540, the Society of Jesus, otherwise known as the Jesuits. All of this may have been excellent, of course, but Paul III's greatest work, and the thing he hoped to complete more than anything else in his pontificate at the time of his elevation, was the convening of the Church's 19th Ecumenical Council, the Council of Trent, effectively the start of what's become known to us as the Counter-Reformation in 1545. It took 11 years of his papacy and much hand-wringing, but Paul was finally able to convene that first session on December 13th, 1545. The elderly pontiff would oversee seven sessions of Trent, the last of those beginning March 3rd, 1547, as the council fathers, quote, formulated for all time the Catholic doctrine on the scriptures, original sin, justification in the sacraments, end quote, as the Catholic encyclopedia recounts. Sadly, though, Paul III wouldn't see the council through to its very end. It was suspended for a time due both to an outbreak of the plague in Trent itself, as well as the Emperor Charles V demanding that it be both soft on dogma as a way to pander to Protestant princes, and also to be relocated to German territory. Paul III wasn't having any of it, and he just opted to simply pause the council indefinitely to avoid a schism, and it wouldn't reconvene until after his death. Still, it's thanks to Paul's decisive action in convening this council that the church was able to survive and regroup in such a time of great upheaval instead of collapsing soon thereafter. Historian Eamon Duffy, who we quoted at the beginning, writes well about the value of Trent, specifically saying, quote, the council decided against any opening— toward Protestantism, and instead sharpened and defined traditional Catholic teaching on every contested question, but it also legislated for the practical transformation of structures. Properly trained priests who didn't have mistresses, bishops who stayed in their diocese and worked to educate and reform, monks and nuns who led edifying lives of prayer and penance. A new, energetic, better informed Catholicism would emerge with a creed which could inspire, end quote. The end of Paul III's life came rather abruptly, and what's worse, it seems to have been due to some family drama to boot. His son, Pier Luigi, named for Paul III's own father, was a brute of a man who was then ruling as Duke of Piacenza. He was assassinated and his body grotesquely hung from a window in his palace. Paul blamed the emperor for the conspiracy and demanded that his son's property be surrendered to Pier Luigi's heir, Ottavio. The emperor unfortunately won. And the land remained in his possession thanks to his ace in the hole, none other than Paul's own grandson and Pierre Luigi's eldest son, Cardinal Farnese. It's thought that the stress of the betrayal of Cardinal Farnese caused the sickness that would claim the Pope's life on November 1st, 1549. He was 81 years old. Pope Paul III definitely wasn't a saint but he was still indeed the catalyst for a new direction in the Church, and therein lies his legacy. Think of the corners of the world into which, which St. Saint Ignatius, St. Saint Francis Xavier, St. Peter Faber, the rest of the intrepid Jesuits traveled in the generation following Paul III's death, bringing the gospel to all nations. Think of the rich tradition that grew out of the Council of Trent and the clear teaching we have as a result um, still five centuries later, and that's to say nothing of the artistic treasures Rome's residents and tourists still enjoy to this day many of which were patronized so faithfully by Paul throughout his life. In our Instagram poll on the PopeCast earlier this week of whether to feature a good pope or a bad one, the good pope votes won out by a measure of two to one, and I would say. Paul III certainly fits that bill. Anyway, to end each episode of the PopeCast, wherever possible, we, of course, like to quote directly from the pontiff's own pen. For Paul III, here's an excerpt from his encyclical Sublimus Dei on the enslavement and evangelization of Indians. Note, of course, that the European venture into the New World was not quite uh, 50 years old at the time of this writing in 1537. And in the document, Paul III unequivocally argues for the rights of the native peoples as fully rational human beings who have rights to freedom and private property, even if they weren't yet Christian. So here's Paul. Christ, who is the truth itself, that has never failed and can never fail, said to the preachers of the faith whom he chose for that office, Go ye and teach all nations. He said all, without exception, for all are capable of receiving the doctrines of faith. The enemy of the human race, who opposes all good deeds in order to bring men to destruction, beholding and envying this, invented a means never before heard of, by which he might hinder the preaching of God's word of salvation to the people. He inspired his satellites who, to please him, have not hesitated to publish abroad that the Indians of the West and the South and other people of whom we have recent knowledge should be treated as dumb brutes created for our service, pretending that they are incapable of receiving the Catholic faith. We, who though unworthy, exercise on earth the power of our Lord and seek with all our might to bring those sheep of his flock who are outside into the fold committed to our charge." Consider, however, that the Indians are truly men, and that they are not only capable of understanding the Catholic faith, but, according to our information, they desire exceedingly to receive it. Powerful words and a great missionary spirit from a man who never ventured across the Atlantic. Thanks, as always, for listening. That's it for this episode of The PopeCast. If you're a a new listener or a returning listener who hasn't yet done so, please subscribe, rate, and review us at iTunes or wherever you'd like to listen to podcasts. It's those reviews and ratings that help boost The PopeCast and podcast rankings and make it more likely to be found and uh, heard by others. Plus, if you leave a review, we'll read it aloud on a future episode and give you a shout out. And speaking of that, our most recent review is from Taylor Schroll of the Forte Catholic Podcast. He left a five-star review, thanks Taylor, and said, not even rated, so underrated it's not rated. Uh, For anybody who doesn't uh, get what that means, I don't blame you. It's a, a Probably an extremely niche inside joke from Twitter, but still, nonetheless, five-star review is a five-star review, right? Thanks, Taylor. Uh, Look for maybe a crossover podcast from the Forte Catholic, given that the uh, trailer for the movie Two Popes came out. Um, Looks like it's been widely panned so far uh, by Catholic commentators, but that certainly doesn't scare us away here on the PopeCast, so we'll look to do uh, an episode on that here hopefully soon, and then uh, a review episode with um, another interview once it comes out later this year. Lastly, uh, if you'd like to easily share the PopeCast with friends, just send them to our website, thepopecast.fm, and also to become a patron and help us continue training these out, visit thepopecast.fm and click the Become a Patron button in the upper right corner. You'll be able to contribute a buck or two an episode or more if you like to keep things rolling. You'll get early access to every new PopeCast episode a day early, plus it's set up to contribute just per episode instead of per month, so Patreon has an either or, uh, so you only actually get charged when there's new content, so uh, even more of Bonus. And special bonus, we're, we're still running here. The next three patrons who join at the $2 or above level will also get a limited edition PopeCast sticker. We've still got a few left to put on your laptop or hydro flask or wherever to make all the other non-patrons jealous, right? So that's the Become a Patron link at the upper right corner at thepocast.fm. And last thing, for uh, Pope quotes, Pope pictures, and other great stuff in between new episodes, be sure to uh, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The So as we close this episode, let us pray for the soul of Pope Paul III and ask the intercession of all of our sainted popes in heaven that we might always be open to a radical conversion of the heart spurred on by the Lord's promptings at the time we least expect it. He's never outdone in generosity, and we only have to say yes to receiving that gift. Until next time.